Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are continuing to work our way through the gospel narrative. This is Gospels Part 51. Last week we saw Jesus wrapping up his interactions with the woman with a discharge of blood, uh, touching his seat to get healed, and her great faith of risking ritual uncleanness to be able to have this experience with Jesus. And then at the same time that that was happening... Jesus wrapped up his interaction with the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, and his daughter being sick actually died, and the text seems to imply, and him telling her to rise up um, amidst the people who were professionally mourning, and him kind of trying to get the father, Jairus, to ignore those people, and it's like, just focus on why you came to me in the first place. Don't let that deter your hope that I have the ability to do something for your daughter. Um, And then we went from there to two blind men following Jesus around and him kind of giving them the cold shoulder until they came into Peter's house and they wanted to get healed. He asked them, do they believe that he could actually do it? And they did. And then we left off last week with a demon-oppressed man that Jesus healed and the Pharisees ended by saying that he cast out demons by the prince of demons or Beelzebub, which is very (laughs) weird. Yeah. Well, you know, like we said, if you're not on his team, you, you'll, whatever, you just come up with anything. It's what you do. I guess it's what we all do, truth yeah. be told. Uh, okay. So, well, I, let's just keep going through the narrative because this is, uh, wow, there's just so much that has happened and yet there is so much that lies ahead. So, you've laid out the groundwork. We know where we came from. And let's pick up in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. It says this, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Okay, let's see. First of all, it says he's going throughout all the cities and villages, and this is, again, we keep trying to get people to picture this stuff in their head. Jesus, he's just kind of working his way all through the Galilee, and that's an important image, geographic image. People have many different views in their head, who knows, whatever. He just spent a lot of time in and around the Galilee, and then it says that he's teaching in their synagogues. And this is also important. Get that image in your head. We've been reading stories, you know, he's he's by the sea, on the sea, in a boat, at caves, in Decapolis, all kinds of stuff. And and we may lose sight of 
how much time he actually spends in the synagogues, in and around the synagogues, whether it's on the Sabbath or even some of the, the regular weekdays. It, you know, in the he was invited to teach in the synagogues, and when he, he was, he, he did so. And we've got to get that mental image in our heads that, that uh, how do I say it? It's, it's like a more correct picture of his daily ministry life. And you got to remember, it isn't just that Jesus was born into Israel and was Jewish. He is the consummate Jew. And we got to get that image in our head. Also says he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Take a shot at that one, Samuel. How, what do you think that is? By now, my brain is trained when I hear the words gospel and kingdom, the phrase repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand comes to mind. Exactly. That's exactly what we're talking about. And, I, you know, I know we've said it a bunch of times. Who knows who's joining in where? It may not be intuitive because you've probably been told all sorts of things about what the gospel is, but repent the kingdom of the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is the gospel. And so, uh, and I don't know, big picture, the kingdom, it's kind of like the first of two big, big endings to the story, right? The kingdom, and then uh, after the kingdom, we have the world to come. Uh, but Jesus is talking about the kingdom, and he is the king of that kingdom. Uh, it mentions that he's healing every disease, every affliction. Uh, now, obviously, People wanted that, right? I mean, from a practical perspective, if you had a chance to to get rid of some sort of uh, problem physically, whatever, you'd, you'd do it. Um, but we've also tried to point out all along the way, hey, you know what? These are all like like little foretastes of the kingdom, right? They they help us to to see what the kingdom is supposed to be. And so one day we're going to see whatever Jesus was doing, we're going to see that be the normal way of life. It's going to be everywhere all the time. Uh, But they were just little foretastes. And then Samuel, I don't know, I feel like picking. It says, he healed every disease and every affliction. Really? Do you think that Matthew is being literal and that he healed all of them? There weren't any left when he was done? Seems more hyperbolic. It's like all manners of diseases and sicknesses. There wasn't just one type that Jesus was addressing. There was a myriad of sorts that he was addressing. Yeah. Yeah. And he, you know what? This is the way we talk. And we don't pick at each other when we do it. We get it. We say every disease, every affliction, and we know what we mean. It was a lot of them. But, and this is important because we've harped a lot on this idea that when we see miracles and healings and all these things, that it's a foretaste of the kingdom. But this is a cool picture because it's showing that his motivation, well, he had compassion. See, many in Israel, and we might think of all the crowds that are, you know, around him, he saw them, he saw that they were harassed and troubled and wearied. Their life was pretty tough. And I think it's fair to say a big part of that was the Romans, their, their um, living in and among them, ruling over them. 
but they were also helpless. And and in that sense, I think we we might look at it as uh, it, they were without the help that they, I don't know, needed, wanted, deserved, hoped for, whatever. They were without the help from the leadership in Israel. Even though, hey, you know, yeah, we've got an occupying force or nation right here in our nation, but the leadership even didn't do, they, they just didn't fill their role even within that circumstance, that context. The leadership had, you know, in some sense kind of thrown them away, scattered them. And so they were like sheep without a shepherd. They had no protection. They had no one who was really leading them. And if you're wondering, well, gosh, Paul, what do you mean? We've talked about how, you know, they've, they're, they're harping too much on this letter of the law. They're going too far that way. The, some of the leadership had purchased their way in. They were in cahoots with Rome, all that stuff. The best way that you can get a handle on what Jesus was talking about, what we're talking about, how is it that the leadership isn't doing their job? Go back and read Ezekiel chapter 34. Now, on one hand, it's going to come across kind of depressing, but it's so good at painting that picture of what we're talking about here. So we're not going to spend the time to go back, but you should. It's really, really good. And then, uh, again, we say miracles are like little manifestations of the kingdom. Here we see Jesus moved by compassion. It's, it's, that is an image that's, I think, so helpful for, helpful for us. He wants to meet physical needs. He is moved when he sees people who are down and out, downtrodden, outcast, whatever you want to call it. And that, that's just good. And in the same way that we are supposed to be like Jesus, people should people on the earth today should be looking at us like that, and I don't think that happens very much. Shame on us. Mm. But one final bit, the harvest is plentiful, plentiful. So on one hand, there's, there is a lot to be harvested. Now, okay, he's kind of switched uh, metaphors on us here. You'd be thinking crops or whatever. He's just been talking about sheep without a shepherd. So you could say there are a whole bunch of sheep. There's a whole bunch of crops to be harvested, whatever. But here's the point, Samuel, when it's time for harvesting, is that just sort of an open window of time? No, you kind of got to be on the ball. A lot, lot of factors at play. you got precipitation that could affect the harvest. You've got a peak ripeness, all, all yeah. kinds of things. All kinds of things. And if you're going to bring that metaphor or analogy in here, then in a similar sense, look, time is limited, and we know Jesus is only going to be there for a while, and et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so that's on one hand, there's a big harvest. On the other hand, there aren't many laborers or harvesters. These are the people who are going to provide the care, the direction, the protection, bringing people back into the flock, or sheep, or whatever, bringing the, the harvest in. So Jesus, he's just kind of stating this as a simple observation of facts, but then he offers advice for what to do about it. And this is really cool because it acts like a segue into what's coming next. His advice is, you, you 12, you, or all my disciples, whoever's listening, you need to beg God. 
that he would send laborers. And we're going to see next, the prayers, the ones who are supposed to be offering this prayer, they're the ones who end up being the answer to their own prayer. And you got to just love, I mean, that is such an image of life in the kingdom. That's such a lesson right there. Mm -hmm. So many times in my life, I've seen it for myself. I've seen it in other people. They, They are, I don't know, praying for something or wishing something was this way or that way or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And when it all comes down, it's like it goes, it falls right back in their lap. Great. You want that? You do it. Mm. And it, I don't know. It's just good. We see that here. Yeah. And that takes us all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 with God being pleased in his creation, especially with humanity. It, it gives this, at least in the Jewish sense, God has this lens of humanity that they have everything that they need. They don't need anything else. He refrained from his created creative works and he rests. Yeah. He rested and then he invites humanity to rest and to reflect on what they have capable to be able to mirror him in being caretakers of his created world. So it's kind of yeah. like a another take on that to say God saying like in in those prayers like actually you have what you need like within yourself to do this now go do it yeah and that that's such a great picture because i, I sometimes i don't know that people either remember or ever really see it or whatever god puts humanity in the driver's seat in control of all creation they have dominion and it's not like hey I'm going to sit on a throne and bang my, you know, staff or something, but it's, we're to care for things, we're to make things better, uh, whatever. It's it's such a great picture. He gave that to us. And even in this, when we're talking about the kingdom and how that all works out, in a sense, he hands it right back to us and says, you know what, guys? I'm giving you direction, now make it happen. It's just really good. Really good. All right, so we're, we're going to move to the next section. Uh, I'm, first of all, let's say what it is. It's in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. Uh, also, Mark chapter 6, verses 7 to 9, and Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Just so you know, we kind of skipped a little bit in Matthew because we'd already covered it as we're trying to go chronologically, and that's the part where he actually selects the 12 disciples who will now be his apostles. And now we're going to hear the story about those apostles. So here we go. I'm going to read from Matthew, chapter 10, 5 to 10. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying. Give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, 
or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Okay. It's kind of a weird little mission, right? Yeah. It sounds good, and then he starts laying all these rules on him. It's like, wait, that sounds harder now. Okay. Uh, for what it's worth, this little section that we're entering into right now, uh, at least in Matthew's gospel, uh, some people refer to this as the missionary discourse. And I don't know if you remember, we've talked about how, yeah, you know, within the book of Matthew, there's like five major speeches, and and this is another one of those. We've already covered the Sermon on the Mount. That was a big, uh, obvious one. Uh, the Kingdom Parables, that was pretty recent. And now we're looking at the missionary discourse. And again, uh, in Matthew's uh, telling of the story, like his sequence, Jesus has just selected the 12. And, and now, if you, if you think about that, what we just finished reading, pray that God would send laborers into the harvest. And then immediately after that, Matthew writes about the selecting of the 12. And now we have this story sending them out. So it's emphasizing that they were the answer to the prayer that he was telling them to pray. It's just kind of cool. They were the ones uh, sent on a mission, and that is an important phrase, sent on a mission. That's what an apostle is. An apostle is someone sent on a mission on behalf of someone else. They go in that person's name, and so it's as if they are them. Uh, the, The one sent is the one who is sending them. And why is that? Well, because they're given that authority so that they can accomplish whatever it is they're being sent to do. And Luke says it, he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Uh, We didn't read that, but that's in the Luke part. So it's important to see that. The apostles, uh, okay, yeah, they're special because they were selected and separated out from all of the other disciples, but apostle it has a very specific meaning. It's one who's sent on a mission. But then Samuel, he tells them, go nowhere among the Gentiles or Samaritans. Well, does Jesus not want? I mean, is Jesus going, you know what? Hey, seriously, this is all about Israel, so forget all the rest of you. Well, you and I would be in a bad spot if that were the case. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Probably probably everyone who listens as well, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, that that's not what's going on here at all. It, 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 we're not trying to suggest, and the text isn't trying to suggest that Jesus, you know, his, his overall or his big picture mission was in any way limited to Israel. That's not what it's saying at all. However, it's important that we do see that Jesus's mission, while he is here walking around as a human man on the earth, his real focus was on Israel first and foremost. And it's a very, very few instances where he interacts with Gentiles. And so he's telling his, his apostles in the same way, listen, avoid the Gentile cities within Israel, right? Forget Samaria, all that. And of course, that's going to change once he dies, is resurrected, etc. But that's where he's at now. The point is that Israel is supposed to be the conduit. They're the ones that God has chosen to bring about this 
fixing of the world, this redemption, this salvation. And and who did he choose? Who who did God choose to do that, Samuel? Avram. That's right. Abraham was the guy. He he had just basically said, hey, you know what? Tower of Babel, this is all a mess. I'm going to confuse everything and, and kind of sort of forget everybody. I'm just going to pick this one guy, this one little strip of land, and that's how I'm going to fix everything. So it all starts with Abraham. Now, of course, God could have done it any way he wanted, but this is it. That's the way he chose. Now, Israel is special. They are elect simply because God says so. It's not because they necessarily earn it. There may have been individuals and times throughout history that, you know what? They actually did do really well. They they, they were great with God. Abraham would be a great example of that. God really liked him, thought he was awesome. Uh, But there were lots of people and lots of time in Israel's history where they weren't earning it at all. But it didn't change anything. They remained elect because God said so. And so it's important that we see Jesus's mission in that light. I think it's the proper light. He was almost entirely focused on Israel and the Jews. And if we can see that and understand that, I know this is kind of far off in the future, but when we get to some of Paul's writings <laughs> and, and we start seeing this idea that Paul lays out, this uh, Gentiles being grafted into Israel, it's going to make so much more sense. Oh, you know what? There's something else that Paul used to always do. You probably remember the phrase, Samuel, it has something to do with who came first and who came second. Ring any bells? Uh... You got to remind me. Yeah, sorry, I was too vague. The Jew first, and also the Greek. Yeah. Right? He says that phrase a few times, and you see it. He gets into a town, he goes to the synagogues, and the Jews first, and then he starts preaching to the Gentiles. It's it's a very common theme, and it starts with John the Baptist, Jesus, the apostles. It's all right there. Mm-hmm. All right, so here's another one. Two by two. Now, it could be... There's multiple reasons. Why would they go two by two? One of them might be, Samuel, for safety. Do you know that to just kind of travel around in the countryside in and around Israel wasn't always safe? It wasn't. So if you went in pairs, well, you were safer. But there's something else. Samuel, if you were in a Jewish court of law, how many witnesses would it take for something to be established as a fact? You would need uh two or more, right? Exactly. And so it could be that they were sent out in pairs because they were witnessing to the testimony, right? It's everything that they're saying is true because it's from the mouth of two or more witnesses, that sort of uh, motif, if you will. But they were sent to the lost sheep, and we may as well say that out loud too, Samuel, who are the lost sheep of Israel? I mean, those are... Torah observant Jews who don't recognize that Jesus is the Messiah? Yeah, I think that's good, but there's even more. How about other Jews who aren't Torah observant? Oh, okay. Yeah. Right? Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, then the list is going to be really long. Sinners, tax collectors, I don't know, maybe prostitutes, who knows, all kinds of stuff. They are the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
So all of those. And then uh, let's uh, we touch a little more on this. Uh, what it gave them power and authority. All right. So as ones who were being sent in his name, they were able to act in his place. It was as if Jesus himself was there doing it. It's a very common cultural thing. They were sent in his name. And what's interesting about this, that word power gave them power and authority. That power is like military strength or, or like you, you would say the word power when you're talking about armies, things like that. And I guess, I guess we could say, you know, obviously they're going to be facing human people, all that kind of stuff, but behind the scenes, you know, uh, maybe, maybe demonic things, maybe principalities, powers, whatever, maybe in a sense they would be facing armies. I don't know, but they were given that kind of power and the authority here that we're talking about is uh, like rule or dominion. And we just talked about that back in Genesis. Humans don't have any sort of inherent authority or rule of anything that's outside of creation. We were given dominion over creation. Not that we've done well with it, but you know, whatever. But Jesus gives us that authority so that we can rule and have dominion even over things outside of creation. At least that's what he's given to the apostles. Jesus had this power and authority because he is that word made flesh, and now he's sharing it with the apostles. And so they too are going to be able to do some things we've seen Jesus do. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. All signs are expectations of the kingdom. But Samuel... Just to reiterate, how many people did Jesus give this power and authority to? Just 12. And how many disciples were there? 12. There were 12 apostles. Oh. 12 disciples that he separated out from all of the other disciples. Gotcha. Those in like 70 or something. Oh, well, there's another time when he does interact with 70 specific ones, but we don't know. There could have, maybe there are just tens, maybe there are hundreds, maybe there are thousands, for all we know. There are way more than 12. That's the important part. So he's only giving this power and authority to the 12. So not every disciple has the same power and authority. This is an important picture to get in your head. I'm not going to push it right now, but I'm just saying he gave it to 12. Didn't give it to the others. Yeah. And just real quick for context, Paul has been pulling the two by two and given the authority over these things in the Mark version of the three gospel accounts. I know that we read from the Matthew version, but he's yeah, he's looking from the Mark version to talk about these points. Yeah. Good on you, Samuel. I get to go on and then I just, you know, it's like, I think everybody's seeing what I'm seeing. World's no. only as big as my head. Check your <laughs> okie dokie notes for more. That's right. The okie dokie notes. I actually kind of forgot about that. That's good. All right. So what does he do next? He's talking about proclaiming the kingdom. And, and this is an important thing. Where did this all start, Samuel? Who started proclaiming the kingdom? John the Baptist. And then who took it over from him? Jesus did. And now who's Jesus kind of sort of turning it over to? His apostles. Yeah, 
Yeah. And then you got to know as, as we progress through the story, ultimately that's going to fall on all disciples, including even us today. So we should be proclaiming the same message. And it's, it's a weird message. At least, you know, as, as modern American Christians, it sounds weird. The message is repent. The kingdom is at hand. If we go around proclaiming things like, Jesus died on a cross so your sins could be forgiven and you can go to heaven. Well, we aren't proclaiming the same thing that John the Baptist was proclaiming or that Jesus was proclaiming or that the apostles were proclaiming, right? It's just not the same. If, if we said something more like, hey, stop sinning. And oh, by the way, that's according to God's standard and not your own. And forfeit your own life for the sake of a life worthy of the kingdom. Well, that's a very different message from just believe in Jesus the same way you believe in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny and you get to avoid hell and go to heaven. It's a very different message. Now, I'm not saying, you know, that it's completely wrong and and like a a dumb thing to say, Jesus died on a cross so your sins could be forgiven, you can go to heaven. What I'm saying is that isn't the message of the kingdom. And so it's good for us to see and hear that. Now, how do we say that, like the stop sinning according to God's standard, not your own, and forfeit your life for the kingdom? How can we say that to people I hope I'm not I'm not trying to sound politically correct, but how do we say that in a language in the 21st century that can be compelling and connect with people living now? Because like that structure would have meant a whole lot more to first century Jews exactly. and even like pagans who had this understanding that God or a higher being rewards righteousness and punishes wickedness or evil like that that was a big priority to them and I, I would say that it's not taught as heavily as it is today so i'm, I'm just trying to right. think of how how we make that relevant to people so that they can connect with it in a meaningful way yeah and that's that it's a great question and it's super hard to answer because i mean well first of all everybody everywhere is different and so you know one size doesn't fit all that's a thing but Part of, I think, what we miss when we're trying to deliver this message is just the simple, the simple story of, listen, you're going to die. All of us are going to die. That is the nature of this world. Death reigns. But you know what? This God that you hear about, maybe you laugh at people because they believe in him or whatever, but, but this God... Let me just tell you what he's about. He wants you to have life, life instead of death. Now, I'm not saying that you aren't going to die physically in this world because we're, you know, God is is working this out. We don't know the timing. But do you want death to reign eternal for you? Or would you rather have life reign eternal for you? It's yours. You can have it if you want it. But it's not just a, 
oh yeah, great, give it to me. You actually have to, I guess, give your life up for it. And so that that story, that idea that, hey, if I want to get on board with this eternal life thing, if I want to be on Team God, if I want to be recognized as wheat and not tares and sheep and not goats, you know, that kind of thing, it isn't just a simple, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. It's it's given your life over. And so somehow in that, there's there's something attractive, this idea of eternal life and a God who has done that for his creation and that you can be a part of it if you choose, right? It's, it's something you have to do. I, I don't know. For me, somewhere in that is, that is the greatest story in the world. But I don't know. Samuel, what are you thinking? Surely when you ask the question, you've got some ideas in your head. So what's, what's going on in there? I guess I'm, I lean towards maybe more trying to get people to connect with all of the, the good things that they value in their life and being able to connect that back to God as creator and then prioritize like getting them to talk about all the things that they see that's wrong with the world. Like it doesn't seem right, like whether it's justice or oppression or poverty or whatever. And they, they might have a desire of wanting that to be fixed and then introducing the concept. It's like, well, they're, like in God's narrative, there's this thing called the kingdom, and that's when God has promised that he is going to make things right again. Like, not just yeah. figuratively or metaphorically, but literally, like, on the earth, where a true king without corruption is going to rule perfectly, and people yeah. who have been made lower are going to be brought up, and there's going to be abundance and everything, like... I don't feel like that story gets talked about enough and I feel like yeah. more people would get excited if they could hear that like God's story is about bringing true justice like in its yeah. proper time. Yeah. See, your answer is way better than mine. Why did you even <laughs> ask a question? You should have just told me what it was. But now, but here's an important thing. There is there was a very common thread between both of our answers. The the normal, I think, American Christian message when they're trying to do evangelism is basically, hey, avoid hell, come join God. But both of our thinking, even though they were wildly different, were more like, no, 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 there's a good thing out here, and you you need to go for the good thing, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's important. I think that's very important. Yeah. The kingdom is at hand. That that phrase, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's like an invitation. It's like the the best thing in the world that you could ever hope for. It's right here. You could have it. It should be the kind of thing that motivates you to go after it instead of trying to avoid or get away from something else. It's like the rabbinic version of a Southern Baptist altar call at the end of a service. <laughs> I am going to be a good boy and leave that alone. Okay, yeah, so it's seriously, Samuel, that was really good. 
that I, that was that was good. I like that. So another thing he talks about in here uh, is this thing about you received without paying, and this is important. The teaching that Jesus is passing on, the miracles that they were going to be doing, right? All that they weren't for sale. Samuel, why did Jesus feel like he had to say they're not for sale? Um, because humanity has a tendency to twist things that are at times inherently good to turn it into a profit. Yes, and that is exactly the the kind of thing that was going on a lot in this place and in this time. You could you could buy stuff. And obviously it wouldn't be as good as Jesus because his was real, but I'm just saying it, it was a real thing. So, hey, don't you do this. You were freely given this stuff, and so you have to freely give it away. And, I mean, again, this is another one. Just roll it forward a little bit. These instructions for the apostles, well, they translate really well to us. And and it may be regarding uh, teaching or uh, miracles, those kinds of things, uh, but I think that we could even go out a little bit further and say salvation. This salvation uh, is a thing that we we also can can freely give. I mean, not like we're the givers of the salvation, but you know, like like inviting people in. You know, I mean, you could like what we were talking about before. I guess you could say something simple like, "Hey, be like God or image God or whatever." But that, that probably isn't helpful for, for a lot of people. What we see is the initial gift, this, uh, and, and this is going to be important. The initial gift of salvation and redemption, okay, for all of us, it is without cost. And it's important that it is because it has to be because none of us could ever pay it. It is, it's, it's an impossible cost, seemingly, in all of humanity, and so it has to be given without cost so that anyone can take hold of it. Now, Samuel, uh, here's, here's an image of what I'm talking about. Isaiah 55, uh, verse 1. Samuel, read that one for us. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come. Buy wine and milk without money and without price. All right. So, Samuel, you're standing around. You're you're lifting out your pockets, and they're empty. Got nothing in there. And somebody's going, hey, come over here. Buy some of this. You're going, uh, no, are you not paying attention? My pockets are empty. What do you, <laughs> I can't. But it's like, hey, if you got no money, come buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money. That's weird, right? But... That's salvation by, you see, you accept the gift, okay? It's the thing that you never could afford, but it's freely given. But it does actually come with a cost. What? But the cost is something that we can afford and should freely give. And that is our life submitted in faithfulness to him and his will instead of our own. So this whole idea of receiving, uh, freely freely giving, uh, the way you freely received, and this verse from Isaiah, all that, just such cool little ties. But mm-hmm. anyway. But before you move on, yeah, I, f- I feel like 
maybe some people when they hear that would struggle especially if if they're wrestling with the idea of who they think God is and they hear that this gift has a cost they could have this picture in their head of God and humanity it like the equivalent of you could say a parent with a child and the parent is giving a child this gift that the child wants and then but then the parent says like you can have this gift but or only if you do this or behave or whatever and so like i i just want to address that to say that i don't think that that is what is being conveyed when we're saying that it comes at a cost it's like the the gift is the true gift is so revolutionary in terms of like experiencing what it's like that it should result in the giving up of your life uh it's a natural consequence rather than this caveat or an asterisk sign above the gift itself yeah yeah it's it's always really really hard to talk about this because and here's the difficulty because you will hear people all of the time talking about you know, somebody says, oh, you you know, we need to try to obey some of the laws or something like that, or, you know, uh, receive instruction from them, try to live according to them, whatever, whatever it is. And they're going to come back with, oh, well, that's works-based salvation. You're trying to earn your salvation. And it's really important that, that people hear, no, we're not. The salvation was accomplished through Jesus through the Christ and and God did that and and there's nothing that we can do to to somehow uh, add to it or 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 even participate in bringing it about it's just it totally free it just is but then there's the other part it's the part where okay so if God did that does that mean that just Every person who has ever lived across all time, you know, hey, they're in. It's free gift. Everybody gets to, quote unquote, go to heaven, whatever, however you want to say that. Well, no. If that were true, that would be universalism. And some people believe that to be true. We don't. And we have scripture that we would look to and say, well, for us, this this proves that it's not. But when you reject universalism, then you're left with, okay. Well, if it's a free gift for mankind, and not everybody gets the gift, well, how, how do you get it? What, what is that? And all through the scriptures, and this is going to be consistent from page one to the last page. Sorry, I don't know what the number is in your Bible. But on every page, all the way through, what God desires or requires of man is faithfulness toward him. It's elevating his will above your own. It's it's all of that. And that's like from the very beginning to the end. And so there is something that distinguishes those who actually receive the gift or or take the gift or I don't know however you want to say it and those who do not. And so I just now referred to that as a cost. Because again, <laughs> if you're a person who's trying to walk in this life as a disciple of Christ, 
it's going to feel like it's really costing you something. But it's not like I'm paying for my salvation. It's it's all, it, it's a response to what he has done. But too many people live in a world where they just think, oh, well, I believe in Jesus. And they think that's it. It's the end of the story. And that we cannot let people listen to this podcast and think that way because they're going to find themselves being tares or goats or, you know what I'm saying? Something mm-hmm. I'm afraid. I, I don't know anybody's final destiny. I'm just saying it's it's a hard thing. So I totally get what you're saying, Samuel, and I totally know what I meant. So the question is, did anything I said help or got more? What do you got? Yeah, I'm just going to say kind of to take it all the way back to the beginning of Jesus's discourse to his apostles. I feel like what you're tr- trying to say and maybe in my brain is that what the gift cost essentially is it costs repentance. Like yes, back in verse 7 proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom that's at hand and yes. Um this is a little bit of a side note, but hopefully you can take it or leave it with a grain of salt. I've been reading this book about this with this rabbi in the 1700s. His name was Rabbi Nachman, and he was in Ukraine. And I've just been reading all about his wisdoms that he had gotten down, like text-wise, or his disciples orally remembered. And one of the things he said that really struck me was in one of his sayings, he said that wisdom in some sense, was greater than the Torah. Now, I don't know if how I think about that, like whether I actually believe it or not, but it was really convicting to say, uh, to, to see how seriously, like, Judaism treats repentance, that they would, like, put it up there as high as the Torah itself. Yeah, that's, uh, woof. You have to, you have to tell me more about this guy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've read anything about him. <laughs> you mentioned it before. I made some joke about Nachman Turner Overdrive. Yeah, still don't get the reference. Yeah, all the old people listening will know what I'm talking about. Uh, so uh, I've gotten you way off track. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's all right. Um, back on the track, we had the disciples. They were being or the apostles being sent out. One of the last things he says was, "Hey, acquire no gold." Right, all that little bit. The laborer deserves his food. So. Now, what's interesting about this, you kind of get this image of God and Jesus, uh, they're, they're following principles that have been set out in the Torah, right? God was going to see to it that they were provided for on this mission because they were, in a sense, laboring for him, laborers in the harvest. It's just it's so good. But here's a few examples. Samuel, read these. Uh, Leviticus uh, not all of these are complete. They're little snippets. Uh, this is from Leviticus 19.13. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Yeah. Boy, how would you like that if every single day at the end of day when you worked, they handed you money? It's kind of different than what we're used to, right? Mm-hmm. Numbers 18.31. For it is your reward in return for your service in the tent of meeting. Yeah. God sets up the priesthood, he does all this stuff, and he's like, hey, I'm going to make sure that you get something in return for what you're doing. Deuteronomy 24, 15. You shall give him his wages on the same day. Hmm, there it is again. Yeah. 
don't keep people's money. So you could say that all these people who are giving us paychecks every couple of weeks or every month, they're actually evil in God's eyes. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, different time, different culture. What are you going to do? Deuteronomy 25.4. You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. Yeah. Just, Just many examples of how, look, somebody, when they're working, you know what? They need to get paid. Now, we, I think we can hold this as a kind of sure expectation for us, right? That's how God's going to deal with us, at least in a general sense. It's not a formula. But I think more importantly, or at least maybe more importantly, we have to hold this as an important life principle for how we interact with each other. We need to make sure we're not holding people's wages back. And I mean that in both a literal and metaphorical sense. We need to to be better about that. Uh, also important, uh, just to notice, uh, now I'm talking about some some fairly broad, generic things. When Jesus is talking here, he's being very specific to the mission. This this isn't as if Jesus is somehow making a rule that says that no minister should ever be compensated for anything ever. That's definitely not what's going on. We've looked at things like this in the past. We're going to look uh, later in the study. These things will come up. It is right and good to care for those who are teachers or prophets or elders or whatever among us. So don't read that wrong. But then again, at the same time, I don't know why I feel like I have to say this, I think there are a lot of people who they're trying to make a buck off something that God maybe has given them, birthed in them, whatever, or maybe not. Maybe they're just doing it on their own. And you know, we, we, turn, we turn God into such a money-making enterprise, and uh, that actually bothers me, and I wish fewer people did that. But anyway, there are, there are those who who work for the kingdom and it's right for them to receive payment in some way. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's see if we can get just one more little section in. <laughs> There's a lot. Famous last words. That's right. Yeah. I'm good at that one, but let's try it. Uh, this is uh, Matthew 10, verses 11 through 15, Mark 6, 10 through 13, and Luke 9, 4 through 6. I'm going to read, well, actually from a couple of places. Here's, here's Matthew's version. He says this, And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And now I'm going to read a little bit from Mark because he adds an interesting bit at the bottom of his. It's his uh, chapter 6, verse 12. He says, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And so you heard that from Mark uh, talking about the repentance again. Mm -hmm. 
All right. So here's some things. Uh, stay there until you depart. Uh, so it's probably a couple of things at play here. Culturally, if the disciple, the apostles had gone somewhere and, and, and they started moving around from house to house, well, the hosts would have felt slighted. This wouldn't have been a, that wouldn't have been a kind thing to do. Others would have understood that to mean that the house that they were leaving to go to the next one, well, they weren't being hospitable. So if you were thinking, well, we'll spread the wealth, we'll stay here a while, we'll stay here a while, we don't want to be too much of a burden on anyone. Well, that culturally, that was not cool. They would have felt, you know, that would have been bad. So Jesus took the time to tell them, hey, you know what? Don't do that. Hospitality, hospitality is important to God. And also, I guess an, another aspect of this is the host, in some sense, becomes a conduit of God's provision. We were just talking about how God was going to make sure that they were going to be cared for. Well, the host is the conduit for that. And so, by extension, you can imagine they would have probably been blessed by playing that role. Seems like a good thing. Uh, And so, it, it was proper. If they ended up in one place, you know what? They just needed to stay there so that that host could get the full measure of whatever was, you know, going on. So, shake off the dust. This one, this was was kind of funny. So any worthy home or town, they would have received the peace accompanying the apostle. So what do we talk about? What do we mean when we say they would receive the peace? Well, uh, this covers a lot of different things. We might think of, you know, peace, you know, like no drama kind of thing, Uh, prosperity, success, welfare, health, friendliness, deliverance, salvation. The list can probably go on. But that's the kind of thing that the home or the town would receive. It was probably, I don't know, we don't really have the detailed stories, but it's probably pretty awesome to have an apostle staying at your house. But if this particular home or this whole town, whatever, was not worthy, meaning they were not welcoming, they were not hospitable, they were not amenable to the apostle's message, well, then the apostles were supposed to shake the dust from their feet. Now, (laughs) this was an actual thing. I mean, this isn't metaphorical. A a real guy would stand up in public out in the street and he would perform this act, okay, shaking the dust from their feet. And it's it's a powerful symbolic act. We modern people might look at it and think it seems a little silly, but in this day and time, this was powerful. It was suggesting big words like, renunciation or repudiation or disavowal. It was for all practical purposes, it's like severing relationship, declaring that there is no relationship or there's no common ground. And it's also like saying, hey, I'm shaking the dust off my feet because I will not be sharing in your judgment. So this, this was really saying a lot, the shaking the dust. So Got to, got to kind of play that movie in your head. Uh, he says it's going to be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know Sodom and Gomorrah. They're often used as an example of divine judgment. We always remember the part about the sexual immorality in the story. If you don't, you, I guess you can go read Genesis 19, catch you up. But 
And, and, and that's all right. I mean, the sexual immorality, it is a big deal. But in first century Israel, it wasn't the only thing. There was another thing that, that was commonly understood to be the downfall of Sodom and Gomorrah. It played an important role, and that was the lack of hospitality toward the angels that had come to town. Now, Samuel, how many angels were there? Uh, were there two? Yes. And the apostles were sent out how? Two by two. Ah, see the connection? There's also a connection with the inverse of the Sodom and Gomorrah story right before that with Abraham and Sarah and their generous hospitality to those same visitors exactly. at them at their camp. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, and and you're right. And I think as it appears in Genesis, they're they're next to each other to highlight the difference, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it's so good. That's and I think that's where Jews, first century Jews, even got the idea, right? So good point, good point. Now, I know uh, more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, being related to hospitality. I know that sounds a little bit weird to us, but we're not them. In context, though, and especially the little bit you added, all that, put this all together, you can see that there's an obvious connection between Sodom and Gomorrah's lack of hospitality and the lack of hospitality that we're discussing when he's saying, hey, just shake the dust from your feet. So they're going to get that targeted action. Uh, again, I kind of pointed it out. Uh, it was Mark that said they were proclaiming that people should repent. And this is yet another explicit connection between this idea of proclaiming the kingdom and proclaiming that you need to repent. Those things go together. It's like the front and back of a coin. We can't be leaving this out of our evangelism. We try to make it this sweet, soft little story. Oh, Jesus loves you. Just come to, you know what? Repent. Jesus is looking for people to be in his image, to live up to the very thing that they were created for. If you are not living up to your potential as a human, Samuel, what are you? (laughs) I don't know, a disappointment. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's a good word. Yeah. You, you're subhuman, or you are a beast. It's the story of the garden. That's why God wants us to repent. It's like, it's another way of him yelling down from heaven, be the human I created you to be. So anyway, repentance means stop disobeying the Torah and instead obey the Torah. There's, there's no other way to interpret the word repent. We try to today, but this is Israel. This is first century Israel. That is what the word meant. So when you're reading your Bible and it says repent, it means stop disobeying the Torah, obey the Torah. It's the only way. That's just, that's how, that's how you read it. And, and you're, you and we collectively, we're not saying that people who are not following God slash Torah slash Jesus, that they are beasts. Like, we are all made, like, believer, non-believer, we're all made in the image of God. We all exhibit characteristics of his nature in the world. It's just there's this war going on between how God wants us to operate as humans where we take control of our desires and our passions, uh, which separates us from beasts. And you have this other aspect of us that wants us to act on our desires and 
give no second thought to what our passions are. And yeah. that that is the dilemma right there that is, you know, the human problem. Uh yeah. you know, whether you're on team God or team not, like it's it's a universal problem across the spectrum. It's just what tools do you have to help you fight that? In this case we're saying God has given you a tool that is the Torah made evident in Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, the serpent's temptation in the garden was, hey, don't you see how awesome this looks? You, 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 you could enjoy this. It was, go with your own desire. desire, follow your own heart. It was an invitation to be like me. I'm a serpent, I'm a beast. You don't have to be different. You don't have to be separate. And so, obviously, then God's call, God's invitation is the inverse of that. You don't have to be beast-like. But yeah, your points are, are very, very good. I am i don't know how I'm coming across on this episode. I'm not trying to call people losers or whatever. I'm just... Yeah, yeah. I don't think you are. Yeah, it's just... Uh, uh, it, Man, again, I'm saying it again. Being a Christian, it is a high high calling and right now i'm calling for us to shut up because we're about out of time what about your i thought you had one more point to give i do oh yeah look at that (laughs) (laughs) so uh there was uh at the end of mark and luke they add this little bit about um Okay, so we know that they were told to do like these signs of the kingdoms, the the healing, casting out, whatever. But Mark and Luke make a point to say, you know what? They actually did them. They actually did them. And the reason I want to talk about this, because I've heard people talk about how, well, they don't mention everything, right? Like, Like the two lists aren't the same. The thing that they were told to do, the list is longer than the list of the things that they did or whatever. Okay. I, I think you're overreading that. Um, the shorter list isn't shorter because they didn't do some things. It's just he's they're 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 listing enough of the list to point back to the original so you know exactly what they're talking about. And I think the the implication or the inference is the very thing they were told to do is what they did. And I think that's important that you bring that up because I think that there's this perception of the apostles that whenever Jesus gave them authority to go do these things, it was like a big old wiffle ball swing and a miss on their part. Like, because there's a lot of uh, accounts later in the Gospels where they struggle to do some of these miracles in certain situations, and Jesus is calling them out on it. But that doesn't mean that they weren't successful and they weren't living out that mission, and that verse is, is like proof to it right there. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Jesus with his his apostles and even the disciples generally, sometimes his expectations are really high. And and I don't know. It, it you got to kind of feel for him a little bit. But yeah, mm-hmm. they 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 were doing well. They were doing well. We got to give them their props. And we'll be doing well if we can get out of here before we hit an hour and 10 minutes. Yeah, that's right. All right. So let's try and do that. Samuel, we're done. Okie dokie. Thanks for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. 
You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. Until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.